Alexander McLaren once wrote, We may have as much of God as we choose. Jesus puts the key to the treasure chamber in our hand and tells us to take all that we want. If someone is admitted into the vault of a bank and told to help themselves, and they come out with one penny, whose fault is it that they are poor? For the last two weeks, we've been in this section of Philippians where uh, Paul's been making a case to the readers regarding holiness. And, and what we've learned so far is that we're called to live our lives in a way or a manner that's worthy of the gospel that we've received from Jesus. We've seen that the gospel conduct shows itself through humility that looks like Jesus because he is the ultimate example of humility. We've also seen that the goal of all of these things is unity as a church because Jesus said that the world would come to know him through our unity if we are one. And this week we kind of come to the outcome of this whole thought process of Paul's. And once again it begins with the word therefore. So because of everything we've learned for the last two weeks, we come to this section of scripture. God said to Israel, be holy because I am holy. Because God wants us to become like him, it's necessary that his people be a special kind of people, holy people. And the basic idea of sanctification is being set apart for God. Those who are set apart live in a way that is pleasing to God. They have no power of their own to do this, but God enables them to do it through the Holy Spirit. One thing that is clear through Scripture is that sanctification is not an option. God requires it of all his people. We are meant to be Jesus to a hurting and broken world filled with sin. We are called to be light. So let your light shine. Every Christian should work to live holy and blameless lives so that we can be light in a world of darkness. So today we're reading Philippians 2, verses 12 to 18. And I chose a bit of a different translation this week, so mine doesn't start with the word therefore, um, but it is there in Greek. So in my translation it says, Dear friends, you have always followed my instructions when I was with you. And now that I am away, it is even more important. Work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. Do everything without complaining and arguing, so that no one can criticize you. Live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. Hold firmly to the word of life, then on the day of Christ's return, I will be proud that I did not run the race in vain, and that my work was not useless. But I will rejoice even if I lose my life, pouring it out like a drink offering to God, just like your faithful service is an offering to God. And I want all of you to share that joy. Yes, you should rejoice, and I will share your joy. So this week I chose more of a thought-for-thought translation this week. And I think I've kind of explained kind of how those different translations work. So there's um, word-for-word translations of the Bible. Those are the most literal. They take the Greek word and find its closest English equivalent. Those ones can be kind of tricky to read. 
just because they don't necessarily flow as well in English. Uh, and then there's these thought-for-thought -thought translations, which takes um, what really was meant by that scripture or the idea behind it and, and translates it to that in English. And so I think it's good to kind of be looking at both of these so that you don't stray too far from what the original Bible says, but um, also to kind of get the sense of what was behind those ideas. So this week I chose a thought-for-thought -thought translation because I wanted to capture the essence of what Paul's trying to say here, because this passage has been kind of abused and, and misused throughout history to some degree. So let me read this verse 12 again. Dear friends, you have always followed my instructions when I was with you, and now that I am away, it is even more important. Work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep fear and reverence. So when we began this study, we, we learned about how much time Paul spent with the Philippians. We, we learned about how close they were. They had a, a kind of unique and special relationship compared to some of the churches. And so he kind of makes an appeal based on that. They always listened to him when he was with them. They were always obedient, and they always took his words to heart. But now that he can't be with them, it's even more important that, he listens, that they listen to what he has to say. So he calls them to obey and behave in his absence the same way that they would if he was there with them right now. And then he gives them a command, an imperative in Greek. Work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. So the NIV and NASB translations, um, they word that as work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And I want to talk about that a second because it's a very literal translation. Uh, but doesn't necessarily capture the, the essence or the sense of what Paul's trying to say here. So the Greek word that's translated as work out in NASB and NIV, it's better translated as accomplish or finish. And it has the idea that you've started something, but you haven't brought it to completion. Uh, and it implies having done something with thoroughness. And then the noun attached to that verb is salvation or soteria in Greek. And that word's used throughout the New Testament. Uh, but the sense of the word here is not of the moment you're saved, but of what that state of salvation entails, which is heaven or a safe haven. But it wasn't necessarily whether at that moment they were saved. That's not what he's saying here. Because it's assumed that they're already saved in Jesus. And we see that throughout the letter of the Philippians. Back in the beginning of chapter 2, Paul says... Because you have encouragement from being united with Jesus, because you have fellowship in the Spirit. And I use the word because, because like I said, that, um, that, that whole list, whenever he says if, it, it was called uh, conditional something. But basically, <laughs> um, the idea was that it wasn't up for subjectivity. He wasn't saying, if you do, in case you don't. He was saying, you are in Jesus, you are in the Spirit, and that is what he makes his appeal on. So Paul is making this statement that implies they are saved, uh, they have been saved, and because of that they should live a certain way. So we know looking forward that he's not saying figure out whether you're saved or not, because he's already said they are. Ephesians 1 verses 13 to 14 says, And now you Gentiles have also heard the truth the good news that God saves you. And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit whom he promised long ago. 
The Spirit is God's guarantee that He will give us the inheritance He promised and that He has purchased, that He has purchased us to be His own people. So, back in chapter 2, He said that they were in the Spirit. The Spirit is God's guarantee that He will give us that inheritance. So, it's important to know what Paul is saying here is not to go figure out whether they're saved or not or what they need to do to be saved. That's not what he's saying because that would be contrary to the entire gospel and good news about Jesus. Because it's not by our works that we're saved, it's by Jesus. Rather, this is actually part of one big thought sandwich, I guess for lack of a better word, that kind of goes throughout the entire letter of Philippians. There's this theme that runs through the letter, and we'll kind of see that theme come to completion in a few weeks, but it's of running a race uh, as Christians. And the race is becoming more and more like Jesus. So you may remember back uh, when we were talking about Paul being under house arrest, uh, all those people were going around and taking advantage of the fact that he was locked up in chains. So they were, uh, they had bad motives for preaching, but they were taking advantage of the fact that Paul was kind of sidelined. Uh, and so while this is happening, Paul says, yes, and I will continue to rejoice for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. And that Greek word, soteria, salvation, is the same word here, deliverance. So that's the same word through the letter. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. So when he says deliverance, we kind of talked about this when we looked at this passage. We know he's not talking about his physical release because he continues to talk about how, through the letter, he thinks that he might die. And he talks about that as a real possibility. So he can't be um, sure that he's going to be delivered out of prison. We also know he's not talking about spiritual salvation in terms of the moment of being saved because... He said throughout the New Testament that we're already saved through Jesus. So what's he talking about? And I think this kind of, the verse after what I just read kind of hints at it. Um, he says, now as always, he hopes that he will have the courage so that Jesus will be exalted in his body, no matter what happens. So I think he was talking about his own sanctification and his own hope of heaven about getting there, the, the finishing of the race. He talks about how this is being accomplished in his own life. And then right after that, he flips over and says, this is what needs to happen in yours to finish your race and to finish your process of sanctification. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Live in humility that reflects Jesus and live in unity. And then today, because of all that, Accomplish and finish your race towards heaven and Christ-likeness with reverence and fear towards God. And what's important to note here is that when Paul says this, it's a command. It was not left as optional. This is the moment in which Paul is saying, you have a lot of great stuff going for you. You're helping out the churches. Um, you're, you're defending the gospel. You're helping me in prison. But you're not getting along internally there's grumbling and arguing, you're not united. And then essentially it's his kind of call for them to, to figure themselves out, to smarten up. 
This is Paul calling the Philippian church to work at these issues until the spiritual health of a community was restored. And so what's important to note here is that so often we focus on our own personal spiritual life and our own personal salvation in Scripture, but the focus here is not on personal salvation. It's on the health of the body of Philippians as a whole, as a church. So let's talk about that fear and trembling piece for a minute. Um, It's kind of one of those cultural things that we don't necessarily get without studying it a bit. So when you read that, it kind of says that maybe you should be afraid because you're not saved. Um, But in biblical imagery, fear and trembling were actually viewed as a positive sign of humility and submissiveness. It wasn't a negative sign. It wasn't Paul suggesting that they should be afraid that they're not saved. This was the proper and expected response of people to being in God's presence. Humility and submissiveness, fear and trembling. The idea is that God's holiness, his righteous anger, and his goodness and grace should fill God's people with such awe, humility, and gratitude that they tremble before him in reverence. That is the proper response to have towards God. And here's the connection to sanctification in verse 13. So do all this because God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. So the only way that this sanctification can happen in our lives is through the Holy Spirit who works in us, giving us both the power and the will to do his will and the desire to do it. But we must allow him to work in us. If we don't let him then he's not going to force his way in. You have to allow him to work in you, and if you don't, then you won't be transformed and changed. This is the reason for the the working out of their salvation. You know, we often think that the opposite is true as Christians, that if God works in us, there's no need for us to make an effort, because God does all the work, so we can just patiently wait for him to make us holy. And he does play a huge part in this, But the truth is that because God's working in us, we now have the ability to become sanctified, free from the fear of what happens when we fail. It it is partially a physical force from God, but it's much more a moral influence that supports us and that helps hold us up and keep us running as we run a race towards being like Jesus. Verse 14 to 15 Do everything without complaining and arguing, so that no one can criticize you. Live clean and innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. So this was a specific example for the Philippians of how Paul saw that they needed to be sanctified, uh, how they needed to change. And this also was a command, an imperative. He wasn't asking, he was telling them, Do everything without complaining or arguing. And the sense of the Greek word that's translated as complaining, we don't translate that one as well in this translation, but it's kind of got this uh, sense of muttering or murmuring behind closed doors. Uh, But then he also talks about outright arguing as well. So the idea is that whether it's in a low voice, behind closed doors, or in a belligerent manner, in front of the public eye, 
Do not do it. Do all things without grumbling or fighting. And the reason is focused on the outside world. It all circles back to that unity piece. If we're united, the world will know Jesus. If we're divided, we do damage to his kingdom. This translation says, so that no one will criticize you as the reason, and then it has a separate call to live clean and innocent lives. But the Greek translation is a bit better. It basically says the reason to not grumble or complain is so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God. And again, this is a corporate call. This is a church body call. So before their testimony for Jesus could be effective in their community, they needed to get their house in order. And this kind of also indicates that it's not currently the case in Philippi. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't have brought it up. Um, you know, we, we kind of approach the New Testament like a rule book, but in reality, Paul and Peter and all these people were writing letters to address specific situations. So it's not extensive, um, but it definitely addresses issues that were happening. They were complaining, they were arguing, and they were fighting. As a result, they were not without fault, and they were not shining lights in their community and in the world. Paul was calling them to get their house in order so that God's purpose for them could be fulfilled. Because compared to the world around us, which is filled with brokenness and hurt and pain and sin, we are supposed to be light. Jesus says in Matthew 6, this is a scary verse to me, if the light you think you have is actually darkness, how deep that darkness is. Verse 16, hold firmly to the word of life. Then on the day of Christ's return, I will be proud that I did not run the race in vain and that my work was not useless. So if they're obedient to what he's asked, the, Paul's um, work, it, it will give glory to him and what he's done. But there's a bit of a slight in this too, I think. And that's my own subjective opinion. You won't find that in the commentary. But just when I read this, you know, hold firmly to the word of life, and then I will be proud that I did not run the race in vain, that my work was not useless. If you translate that to today's language, imagine if someone wrote you a letter and said, keep reading your Bible and following Jesus so that I know I didn't waste my time with you. How would you take that? <laughs> when I read that, if I was the Philippians, I would take that as a bit of a slight. <laughs> um, it's kind of intense. It's, and considering that Paul was so close with the Philippians, compared to these other churches, it's all that more deep. I think the idea is that Paul loved the Philippians and he was close to them. But he was also frustrated by these issues that he was hearing about in his absence. He put years of time and energy into this church in Philippi. And he wanted them to know that he was serious about this issue. But then, as often does, um, he cuts the slight a bit so that it won't sting quite as badly. He says, But I will rejoice even if I lose my life, pouring it out like a drink offering to God, just like your faithful service is an offering to God. And I want all of you to share that joy. Yes, you should rejoice, and I will share your joy. 
So he, he doesn't neglect the fact that despite these issues going on, they have been working hard to support his ministry and the spread of the gospel. And they have been supporting churches and they have been supporting him. So he doesn't neglect that. However, Paul has at this point given up everything but his life and potentially is facing the possibility of even losing that for the cause of the gospel. But he considers that a joy, a sacrifice to God, and he wants them to share in that joy. The work that they have done for God was considered an offering to God, and it did fill them with joy, but he wanted them to go all the way. He wanted them to be all in, to allow themselves to be wholly changed and sanctified and made Christ-like. Like we said the first week, no matter how long you've been at it, no matter how long you've been a Christian, there's always room to grow more and to become more like Jesus. He wanted them to experience the same joy that he had in that offering of his entire life. Because God does not want half of you, he wants it all. So what does this mean for us today? How do we let our light shine to the world around us and how do we apply some of these things that Paul wrote to the Philippian church? So first, let your light shine by becoming more like Jesus. Sanctification is not something that we talk about extensively as a church. You know, we focus often on the fact that we fail Jesus often. But it's okay because he forgives us when we do. And that's true. Never forget that. But it's also not an excuse to keep living the way that we've always lived and living the way that the world lives still. In Romans 6, 1, Paul says, Should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Because of Jesus, we are now free to pursue godliness in our lives without the fear of what happens when we fail. Jesus is our supreme example and as we become smaller, he becomes greater in us with the goal of one day having our lives look like his. And that's not something that we'll ever complete or finish here on earth. But that is still the goal we are racing towards. And we're going to talk about that racing a lot more in the coming weeks. But the idea here today is that your life should reflect Jesus more today than it did yesterday. And it definitely should reflect it more now than when you were first saved. Now, we all have rough patches. We all fail. We all have bad days, weeks, or years. But the general trend should be upwards. It isn't one step forward, two steps back. It's two forward, one back, two more forward, one back. And you just keep doing that for the rest of your life. You keep on pushing towards the goal. Jesus is the light of the world. As we begin to reflect him more and more in our lives, and as we begin to decrease, the light of Jesus begins to radiate into the world around us. <coughs> Second from this passage, let your light shine by not grumbling or arguing. And I argue that this does fall under the last point, because sanctification is kind of a blanket. Um, but Paul made specific mention of it on its own, and I need more than one point, so I'm going to use it. Because it's so easy to become bitter and angry, it's so easy to be dissatisfied. And I know this from my own personal experience. It's, it's so much easier to fight with people and disagree than to put the work in, 
to achieve unity and peace. And let's be honest, especially in our world today, there are so many things that people can disagree about when it comes to what we believe and how we do things as a church. And I would argue that any church that says that they have it all figured out and they don't disagree about anything, I would say they're living in a fairy tale. Because any time that people get involved in anything, whenever you have the human factor, the sin factor, there will be tension and there will be disagreement. There will be fighting. It, it happens. But unfortunately for us as Christians, and I say unfortunately because it's the harder road, we are called to take the high road and figure it out. We don't just get to be mad and angry and not resolve our differences. At least not if we care about reaching the world around us for Jesus. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. It was a command and it was a blanket command. It wasn't do these things without grumbling or arguing, but these things are serious, so argue and complain about those. No, it was do everything without grumbling or arguing. And we're going to look at this further in a few weeks. And I know I said I was going to stop cross-referencing things that we're going to study later on. Uh, but I'm going to do it again. Uh, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 15, Paul says, Let all who are spiritually mature agree on these things. If you disagree on some point, I believe God will make it plain to you. But we must, we must live up to the progress we have already made. When we fight and argue as the church, we're not being light. We're being darkness. But when we submit in humility, when we stand on God's word, when we are united, we are light, and the world is reached for Jesus. And that brings me to the third point. Let your light shine by holding fast to the word of life. And this is really important because in our world, for sure, we are not the best at being in our Bibles. Because life is so busy. We're always running from point A to point B. And, you know, if we're in the car, there's music on, there's all this white noise always around us. Our phones are ringing, you know, we're getting emails or, or whatever. We don't always make enough time for us to be in the Bible, but it's so important for our spiritual development and growth. How can we begin to work and live and look like Jesus if we don't know what that looks like? How can we grow in holiness through the Spirit if we aren't taking the time to learn about what that means? We have to be in the Word daily, learning and growing closer to God, because it is our foundation on which our faith is built. It is good news. It is inspired, and it directs our path. The path to being light in a broken world is written in its pages, so we have to cling to it. It isn't always easy. It definitely is not always comfortable. Often it's inconvenient, but it's good. The more we grow closer to God, the more we spend time in His Word, the more we begin to look like Jesus, and the more we begin to be light to a world of darkness. So in conclusion, we are called to let our light shine in the world around us, to a world that is hurting and broken and filled with darkness. To be light in a world of darkness, we can't be darkness too. We have to be light. We can't look like the world as the church. We just can't. 
We need to be made holy. We need to reflect Jesus in our lives ever increasingly. And we know we aren't perfect. We know we'll make mistakes. You know, when people say that Christians are the biggest hypocrites, I say, you're probably right. <laughs> you know, we say things and, and we want to be holy and we fail every day. Um, yeah, I know I'm a hypocrite. But the goal isn't to be perfect. It's to be increasingly like Jesus and to hold to what is true and holy. We need to let go of anger and bitterness and embrace humility like Jesus, living lives worthy of the gospel in unity together. And the only way we can do this is if we allow the Holy Spirit to continue his work in our lives. And if we cling to the truth, the word of life, the Bible, because without it we stand on nothing. We are a rudderless ship. Without it we have no direction or purpose. But with his help and his leading and with his word, we can be a light to a world that is desperately in need. We may have as much of God as we choose. Jesus puts the key to the treasure chamber in our hand and tells us to take all that we want. If a man is admitted into a vault of a bank and told to help themselves and comes out with one penny, whose fault is it that they're poor? God is offering you so much more than pennies. Let him bless you and work in you so that your light will shine bright like stars. Father God, I thank you for all the ways that you have blessed us through the sacrifice of your son Jesus, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in our lives to make us new creatures. And I know that we're not perfect and we know we make mistakes, but God, I just ask that you would be with us and continue to work in us to make us more and more like you every day so that we can be lights to the world around us and change the world for you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.